Hello, and welcome to the Learn It Podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. Our aim is to introduce you to changemakers who are reimagining what students need to know, how they will learn it, and ways technology can help or not. We're looking at reopening schools in the wake of COVID and how learning is changing. We want to know how to close equity gaps and prepare students with the mindsets and skills to thrive in what is proving to be a very uncertain world. I'm your host, Jenny Anderson. Head over to learnit.world to join the community or to get in touch. Today, we're talking to Kaya Henderson, a veteran educator, activist, and now entrepreneur. This week, she launched Reconstruction, an organization providing unapologetically black curriculum online. Her goal? A hipper, cooler Hebrew school for young African-Americans to celebrate their rich history and see themselves positively in school and in life. It's an online tutoring platform, which she calls a community, a family, and a safe space. For me, I'm an institution builder. I've built an institution at DC Public Schools. I am building an institution. My intention is to build or rebuild the institution that is the Black community. Kaya served as chancellor of the District of Columbia Public Schools, known as DCPS, for six years. During her tenure, enrollment increased, graduation rates improved, and her district made huge gains in learning outcomes. Kaya is a passionate believer in leading with authenticity and empathy. In this episode, we discuss racism in America, the need to create a curriculum that better serves Black children, and how communities grounded in their history and identity can catalyze young adults to lead the change we all so desperately need. Kaya Henderson, thank you for joining us. I'm happy to be here. You are starting a company called Reconstruction. What is it? Reconstruction is an online platform that provides unapologetically Black education. One of the things that I have been um, compelled by is the intentional identity and cultural development of certain ethnic groups. Jewish people send their kids to Hebrew school or to Jewish camp. Sikhs send their kids to Sikh camp. Korean people send their kids to Korean school or Chinese people send their kids to Chinese school. And there isn't, at least anymore, uh, sort of a systematic, at scale, intentional institution that is about the cultural and identity development of African-American young people. I think previously our churches and our urban leagues and our NAACPs and our civic associations did that kind of thing. Even the fact that, you know, we lived closer to our extended family. But I think I, I have been worried, and lots of my friends who are parents have been worried, um, that as we live in an increasingly diverse world, that nobody is minding the cultural store for Black people. And so I thought to myself, what would a Saturday Academy look like for African-American students? What would a hipper, cooler Hebrew school look like? Um, what are all of the, the books that I would want an African-American student to read by the time they left high school? What would a national black curriculum look like? And so we sought to put that together um, and we combined that with um, the understanding that when young people are tutored or mentored or taught uh, by people who look like them or who share their cultural identity, that you get greater student achievement effects. And so we recruited a few hundred recent college graduates and 
and current college students and some teachers and even some retirees uh, to help us deliver this curriculum. We put it online, so no matter where you are, you have access to it. And this was all pre-COVID. This was all pre the racial reckoning, I guess, that the United States is going through. Um, we just really felt like in order to rebuild the African-American community, uh, we needed to start by building strong cultural connections and historical connections with our young people. So that's what Reconstruction is. It's an online platform that provides curriculum and tutoring uh, targeted towards African-American students, but open to everybody. And uh, we hope that that will help our students see themselves differently in school and in life. Why is this important now? I mean, you just pointed out that this started before the racial reckoning. It started before COVID, but you are launching in the middle of that. It's actually, it's very interesting. In fact, we named it Reconstruction, hearkening back to the, the period of American history just after the Civil War, when African-Americans were perhaps uh, our most prosperous in the course of our history. We incorporated our own towns. We founded 5,000 schools. This was a 12-year period um, right after the Civil War when, in fact, um, white people and Black people had to figure out how to live together given the fact that our previous system of living together, enslavement and ownership, was no longer uh, the rule of the day, we had to re-knit ourselves back together as a country. We had to redefine our relationships. And for African-Americans, it was an incredibly prosperous time. We founded 37 HBCUs, 24% um, of farmland in the United States was owned by African-Americans. Um, in fact, we turned the presidential election uh, at that point, electing Grant um, because over 500,000 African-Americans voted. Um, in fact, most of the legislature of South Carolina was black. And we look back at that time to remind ourselves that we do have a history of excellence, of leadership, of self-sufficiency in this country. And we wanted to hearken back to that period because right now we're in the same situation. We have to figure out how to re-knit together a fractured country. We have to figure out how not just white people and black people, but the broad diversity of folks who, who make up America, we have to re-knit together how we live given recent events. And what we fundamentally believe is when young people see themselves, know their own history, when they see themselves in the things that they are being taught, when they are challenged to be responsible and to act with agency, um, when they know that they come from a tradition of Black excellence, that in fact, um, that might allow them to stand up and lead in a different way, that might allow them to develop solutions for their communities collectively, um, the way our culture teaches us. And so this is particularly important in this moment. We didn't know it was gonna be this moment. We just felt like this was necessary. And it turns out that uh, we were originally going to launch in January. As I looked out at how distance learning was not going well in the spring, I knew that families were going to be looking for content, supplemental content. And so we kind of accelerated our curriculum development. 
hiring teachers from all around the country to help us develop this curriculum and getting our platform in place and getting our tutors in place so that we could be ready to meet the moment this fall. For some, there's this deep fear that deep identity politics is pulling us apart, not knitting us together. I hear you saying the opposite. Talk us through how building Black identity is going to help us knit ourselves back together. I think, first of all, when some people have strong cultural identities and they know their histories and other people don't, it's hard to then come together because some people have been taught a narrative of superiority. And if, and if there's no counter to that, I think part of what we're seeing in the cultural gestalt is a counter narrative to this, it, it was all good, right? And I always say, you're not a family until you have a fight. If we can't tell the truth about American history, if we can't confront who we were on the pathway to who we want to be, then it's never going to happen. In fact, we see what has happened with 250 years of warped history, and it has all exploded. And so I don't, I, I actually think if each of us is strong individually, then we can be strong collectively. We can come together on a more level playing field. Um, I can debate you vigorously and we can disagree, but we can also find a way together. I can be strong in my culture. I, I think about the life that I've lived and I had a very strong grounding in African-American history and culture and community. And I think part of that has enabled me to recognize and respect other people's history and culture and traditions, right? Theirs is as valuable as mine. Mine happens to be mine. I love my blackness and I celebrate that. And I want you to love your whatever you are. And when I love me and you love you, we can respect each other. We can allow for difference. We can find opportunities to work together. So I actually think strength in your individual culture enables you to interact with other people in a more positive way. I feel like when you don't know who you are and when the world disparages you, you have the need to prove something. You can't engage with other people. I mean, it all seems pretty negative or you feel defeated and you feel like you don't belong here. And part of this is reminding these young people that they do belong here, reminding them that they come from a deep tradition. How can we say we're not good at math when math originated on the continent of Africa? Right? We have to help rewire our young people's thinking to remind them that they come from a great and mighty people and it's their responsibility to, con to continue that. You told me that this is purposefully not inside schools. Why is that? So having led a school system, <laughs> I feel like I know this better than a lot of other people and was incredibly intentional in making this decision. The reason why it's outside of school is, is there are a couple of reasons. Number one, we ask schools to do 950 different things in seven hours. And I frankly believe that this deserves the appropriate time and attention that is not a month in February or a 45 minute course or whatever. I want the time and space to be able to do this without constraints. I also am very mindful of 
state politics and our federalist system where in order to get anything done in schools, you've got to go through a lot of politics to get things approved in 50 different states with a zillion different school boards. And that's just not the best use of my time, frankly. The best use of my time is getting more and more kids exposed to this content. Um, and so I didn't want to spend all of this time trying to get states to approve this curriculum. I also am frankly worried about um, who teaches this. I think in order to inspire young people, you have to believe in them. And unfortunately, not all of our teachers believe that all of our young people have the potential to be excellent. It's not their fault. They weren't taught that. They weren't raised in that culture. And I don't want to chance this really important task to people who don't believe in our young people. And so in the very same way that we haven't, I guess, I, I also know that this in, these institutions weren't built for Black kids. And so to entrust an institution that was actually built in some ways um, to, to not uplift Black people, that, that all of a sudden it's going to shift and do a really good job at empowering these young people, I, I, it's not a risk that I'm willing to take. And so, you know, drawing on examples from other communities, I wanted to situate this outside. I wanted to situate this in places where kids already are and where they might feel comfortable. I wanted to create an environment. There are so many of our young people who don't feel successful in school. I wanted to take them out of school and give them a space where they can hang out with four or five other kids and a cool mentor, tutor, and you know, ask the questions without feeling dumb or be with a group of people who they know are rooting for them and believe in them. I wanted to create an environment that feels very different than school because so many of our young people haven't been successful there. You wanna build a community. I wanna build a community. I wanna rebuild family, yes. I love that you're not a family until you have a fight. I'm feeling much better about the status of my own family at this particular moment. <laughs> Educators are really grappling with what to do with race right now. Are you hearing from a lot of educators? and What are they asking you? What I'm most hearing from educators is how do I get my kids on the platform? I think that um, educators of all stripes recognize um, this void, uh, recognize that we haven't um, done history the right way. And in fact, lots of educators are, are, are looking for culturally relevant content. Um, I have educators who are signing up to tutor on the reconstruction platform because they wanna get access to our curriculum so that it will improve their teaching. I have schools that are saying, can we just buy your curriculum and you train our teachers to implement it? Um, I, I think that there is a tremendous um, demand for the kind of content that we've created. And I think that what most great teachers know is that when their kids are confident, when their kids have good foundational skills, when their kids see themselves uh, with a sense of possibility, it makes the teacher's job easier. You redesigned the DCPS curriculum. What worked and what didn't? I am, first of all, so proud of the work that we did on curriculum at DCPS. When I got there, 
um, there was not a standardized curriculum. Everybody was kind of freelancing and doing whatever they wanted to do. And from an equity standpoint, to me, a school district's job is to ensure no matter what school you're in in Washington, D.C., we're going to guarantee you a particular level of quality. Now, there may be some schools that can go beyond that and add and have more resources or whatever, but my job as a superintendent was to ensure at least a standard level of quality and having a standardized curriculum allowed us to do that. We built it in conjunction with our best teachers. We didn't buy it off the shelf from a big textbook publisher. We worked with our most excellent teachers to co-develop curriculum that was aligned to the common core. And to me, the people closest to the problem usually have the best solutions. What I couldn't do, you know, I am really compelled and believe that kids need to have international exposure and a global experience. And I, I was able to do that in some regard at DCPS. I was able to get it into the curriculum somewhat, but then I had to do the rest supplementally, right? And, and there's only so much supplemental that you could do. Um, there were big gaping holes in, in the history portions. And so we did the best we could. But again, if I could have, I would have, you know, made space for um, deep historical explorations of lots of different cultures. But the vast majority of young people in, in DCPS are African-American, and I still felt that it was insufficient. Although we gave more, did more, still, I felt like if these young people had more and deeper exposure to their own history and culture, they'd be in a different situation. Did you get resistance to that, or was it really time constraints? Time constraints, right? Every year, add environmental science, add nutrition, add sex ed, add financial literacy, you name it, you just cannot keep on adding. And so, you know, school is constrained and I wanted to operate without constraints. You talk a lot about being present, being connected, being authentic. This is being so challenged right now in this moment of remote learning. What advice do you have for educators and what role does something like reconstruction have in that? I think that you're right. We are even more challenged to make deep connections. And still, um, I see educators going out of their way to really maintain deep connections. They're calling their kids, they're texting their kids, they're Zooming with their kids. Your effectiveness as a teacher is actually predicated on our relationship. And I think great teachers know that this is not just about getting on Zoom and delivering the curriculum. In the same way, it's not just about coming into a classroom and delivering the curriculum. You've got to find out what makes your students tick. You have to find the things that connect you, and that enables great teaching to happen. I think the challenge for us is to continue to find ways to use technology to strengthen those really authentic connections. So last night, protests erupted after a grand jury indicted one detective of reckless endangerment for his role in the raid on Breonna Taylor's house, but two officers who shot Breonna Taylor face no charges. There is frustration. There is anger. There is a sense that we are not moving forward right now. Where is the U.S. in this reckoning on race? It's interesting. Um, a friend said to me, she's not calling it a reckoning because a reckoning means that something changes and we're not seeing anything change. We are revisiting a conversation about race 
that has been going on for a really long time and we might be revisiting it in new ways. I think that is an appropriate um, uh, assessment. It is difficult to wrap your head around the idea that I could be asleep in my own house, somebody could come in, shoot me, and nothing happens to those people. It is, that's staggering for anybody to believe in the United States of America or in most places in the world. And when African-American people have countless examples of that over and over and over again, um, it becomes, it, 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 it becomes difficult to exist every day. Every, your existence is resistance. Your existence, I drove from DC to New York last night and I, you know, I, I am constantly in fear of being pulled over um, because like Sandra Bland, who was just on her way to a new job in a new state, right? I could end up dead. That is our reality. We can't protect our children. Our children playing in playgrounds are shot by police. And again, nothing happens. And so what the world has communicated, it is a wonder, Jenny, that Black people have not freaking exploded all over this country. It is a wonder. And I don't, uh, I don't know how to make people feel as unsafe as we feel on a day-to-day -day basis. And yet and still, instead of raging, right, we channel our energies into trying to build up the next generation to give them tools that will help them maintain an optimism about this country that we help to build that will help them understand that they belong here and to help them understand that by their efforts, we can actually make change, despite the fact that we have not had a great track record of it. We remain eternally optimistic. And that hope is my revolution. That hope is my resistance. That pouring into the next generation is my fight. And so reconstruction right now, I think, is a tool. There are people who are choosing to fight this on lots of different fronts. Some people protest, some people dismantle institutions. For me, I'm an institution builder. I built an institution at DC Public Schools. I am building an institution. My intention is to build or rebuild the institution that is the Black community, the, the, the institution that made me, that sustained me, that spit out so many people from the beginning of our history in this country to now. I, I want to be part of that building tradition. That's my revolution. When you're talking to young people, what is the role of education in this moment versus protest versus anger? There, there both have to take place. If it, we have to allow people to express their frustration, to express their anger, and we could leave it there or we could channel it into something productive. Um, one of our recruitment posters for, uh, for tutors targeting young people on college campuses said, you've protested, now what? Right, because there is one thing to express your anger, but if you want something to change, then you've gotta also work on something. And so for me, 
you know, whether it is giving our, our college students a place to channel that anger into something positive, or giving our, our young students a place, a safe place to go where they can express, they can make meaning of what's happening right now with people who look like them, who are experiencing the same thing that they are, and can help them deconstruct some of what's happening, can show them a tradition of resilience. This is not the first time this has happened to African-Americans. And if we don't know our history, then we don't know that people have overcome lynchings. We don't know that people have overcome Jim Crow and the Klan. This might be the first one that our young people are encountering and experiencing, but they should also know what has happened in other protests and movements, right? We have what we call the Reconstruction Canon, where they're reading classic Black texts that deal with, you know, different ways to think about um, how America treats us or how we need to champion our own causes. We have a, a spoken word course where our young people are learning great Black speeches and great Black poems and, and, and sermons that have actually carried our people over these kinds of moments. We have these two major upheavals happening at once. We have COVID-19 and some of the light it's shedding on equity. We have this race conversation. What are the chances that all of this upheaval moves us forward? And what is the chance that it's paralysis or even regression? The book that radically changed my life is a book called Faces at the Bottom of the Well, The Permanence of Racism. And uh, it was written by Derek Bell. I think the first tenured African-American professor at Harvard Law School, civil rights attorney, what that book challenged was, what if we shan't overcome? What if racism will not go away? What would you do differently? And while I remain eternally optimistic about people's ability to come together and solve problems, about the world being a better place, um, I, I had to take Derek Bell's challenge very seriously and think to myself, what would I do if I thought racism would not disappear? And I, I don't, I actually, I'm pretty much in that camp. I think it can get better. I don't think that racism will ever go away. And that is one of the things that made me think, well, at the very least, I can strengthen my community and give them the tools to work with other people. That that is my reasonable service. That is part of my reasonable service. And so I think even if you, one, I think you have to maintain a sense of optimism, but two, I think you can confront the brutal reality of the fact that things like racism may not ever go away and still find a way to operate positively moving forward. You left DCPS, joined Teach for All. You were doing work, building communities around the world. What took you from that to reconstruction? It was a, such a straight line. So I am running around the world supporting 52 different countries and helping communities work together to bring about educational transformation. And I am literally watching my community fall apart. And I'm thinking to myself, it's great that, that I am running around the world, <laughs> you know, helping other people. But in fact, I feel a tremendous tug on my heart to apply my talents and my experiences to my own community. I'm doing the right work at the right time in the right place um, for me. I am operating in my purpose. And, and I think 
when you are where you're supposed to be, the universe just opens windows and pours out blessings. And that's my experience right now. All right. So we always end with, um, you've just, you've already answered one of them, one of my questions inadvertently, your favorite book about education. I'd say, I'd say my favorite book about life is, is Spaces at the Bottom of the Well. Um, my, maybe one of my favorite books about education, two books about education, Savage Inequalities, Jonathan Kozel, you know, I'm reading in the weeks before my first year of teaching middle school Spanish in the South Bronx. I grew up a couple of miles away from where I taught, but in Westchester County, which is a completely different situation in the South Bronx. And Savage Inequalities really, I don't know, just opened my eyes in new ways. And then Amanda Ripley's The Smartest Kids in the World and How They Got There. Um, that sort of scratched my two itches. My, my bachelor's degree is in international relations. My career has been in education. And so that, um, that married two of my passions. And I think there's so much to take from that book. So those two, I would say, are What are you binge watching? I'm binge watching Lovecraft Country, um, which is fascinating. It is kind of sci-fi slash civil rights uh, in very interesting ways. Um, what else am I binge watching? Nothing much, because I'm starting a company and I'm consumed and I'm working. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. I love the conversation. Thank you for having me. What struck me most about this conversation was Kaya's reflections on optimism, something I'm feeling a bit short on these days. She said she's able to maintain hers while confronting the brutal reality that racism will probably never fully go away. She does that by building institutions, in this case, reconstruction, a community, a family really, where young black people can gather to share space, to feel safe, to inquire, to explore, to support each other and to celebrate black history and culture. I loved hearing about the Leroy Campbell artwork around her, including Fighting Tools, a painting which depicts young black girls learning at a table in a boxing ring. As Kaya says, education is one of the best tools available in the significant fight against racism. Her commitment to investing in the next generation as a form of resistance in that fight is inspiring and instructive. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you did too. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.